Welcome to Putting On the Mind of Christ. Each week at this time, we go into the Ave Maria CD archives and pull on a talk or two to see what our Lord might have to say to us. Many of these talks are recorded at area conferences. Most of the speakers are nationally known, but some may have been recorded by a brother or sister sitting in front of or behind you at Mass. Ave Maria Radio presents this program of God's Word to His people. This is Henry Root, your host and program producer for Putting On the Mind of Christ. On January 12, 2013, Ave Maria Radio presented its first ever full-day conference. It was forced by the outcome of the November elections and all that they foretold. For those who have ever worked on large conferences, you know that this is hardly any time to produce a major conference. But produce it, we did. There were six major speakers, including the instigator, Al Cresta. The four session speakers were the USCCB's Kevin Appleby, Priest for Life's Father Frank Bavone, Notre Dame School of Law's Gerard Badley, and Catholics for the Common Good's William May. The keynote speaker that day was Dr. Deal Hudson. The opening prayer was offered by Bishop Earl Boyer of the Diocese of Lansing. Each speaker was followed immediately by a panel discussion. The panelists were Father Robert Sirico, Dr. Monica Miller, Teresa Tamio, Dr. Michael New, Robert Muse, Richard Thompson, Dr. Gregory Popchek, and David Grobel. Over 700 attendees filled the ballroom of Eastern Michigan University's Student Center for what was really a full day that didn't end until 5.30 that afternoon. While the crowd was largely graying, there were a number of young adults and families. The babies were given a special measure of grace. There was very little crying heard. Our topic on this edition of Putting on the Mind of Christ is immigration. The topic itself and the effects of those caught being illegally in the country is of great concern to the church and her leaders. I had thought I knew something about it. But after listening to the USCCB's Kevin Appleby and then reading a number of emails that arrived daily, I realized that I didn't know much about immigration at all. I think many Christians are in the same position. I invite you to stay tuned for Kevin Appleby's talk and then perhaps the even more informative panel with Father Robert Sirico and Al Cresta. This is Putting on the Mind of Christ on Ave Maria Radio. Putting on the Mind of Christ is a compilation of presentations, talks, and news recorded over the past couple of decades. References to people, facts, and opinions heard were made at the time of the recording. Welcome back to Putting On the Mind of Christ. This is your host and program producer, Henry Root. The idea for the Catholic Witness Conference didn't come about until after the U.S. national elections last November. It was the idea of Ave Maria Radio's President Al Cresta and its producer, Nick Tom. The entire staff was pressed into service. Many had never worked on a major conference before. Consideration hadn't been given to the fact that the Christmas and New Year's holidays would make it difficult to finalize conference arrangements and it would delay ticket sales. After the New Year began, phone calls were finally returned and everything worked out. The registration numbers were small the Monday before the conference. Prayer was offered. The telephones then started and kept ringing. Email orders kept arriving. The decision was made and 700 chairs were set and the box lunches were ordered. That Saturday morning, people kept arriving. Some attendees sat around the edges of the ballroom. The audience was even in their seats at the appointed time. That's a miracle. We started on time. I go to a lot of conferences, more than one a month. That just doesn't happen. Now Cresta opened the conference, and Bishop of Lansing Earl Boyer offered the opening prayer. 
That was followed by Dr. Deal Hudson's keynote address. Talks on immigration, pro-life, and religious liberty followed Deal. The first talk following Deal Hudson's address was by the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops' Kevin Appleby. He's the Director of Policy and Public Affairs, the Bishop's Point Man, as it were. He teaches us the Church's position on many areas of immigration. We learn, among many things, that immigration is not just about letting many illegal aliens into the country and granting them voting rights to make up for the numbers of babies aborted because of the policies of the Liberal Party. Here is the USCCB's Kevin Appleby. Wow. I want to talk to the organizers first and complain about being right behind Deal Hudson. (laughs) He's a tough act to follow, but I'll try. First of all, I want to thank uh, Ava Maria Radio for inviting me to the conference to talk about the important issue of immigration. I know Ave Maria Radio only over the telephone and Al's voice, and it's a pleasure to be here in person to meet him and to meet all of you. So thank you. What I want to talk about today is an important issue that's facing our country. It's the issue of immigration, an issue that's been debated for years in the country to no resolution at this point. It's not an issue for the mild of heart. It does rile emotions. It does create divisions in our society. And I do believe that the Catholic Church and the Catholic community can bridge the divide on this issue. You know, I think sometimes when I work for the bishops, is there any issue that the bishops can support that's not controversial in some way? You know, a post office or something that... (laughs) But it's the mission of the church to speak the truth to power on these important issues, and immigration is is one of them. There are signs that the nation is coming together, however, on this issue, that there's a majority consensus forming on, first of all, that we have a broken immigration system and it needs to be reformed, and second of all, that it needs to be reformed, not piecemeal, but in every aspect of the system. Since the election, there has been movement on this front, where there hasn't been movement for several years. The last time Congress tried to reform immigration was in 2007, and that failed. And then we hit a recession, and the issue certainly hasn't come up, at least in terms of a broad fix on immigration. But now we see that elected leaders in Congress on both sides of the aisle have called for coming together to fix a broken immigration system. That's a promising sign. And we also see movement in the U.S. Senate where we have a gang of, they call the gang of six senators, working on an immigration bill. So we could have upon us in the next few months an immigration debate in this country. Of course, Congress has a lot of other things to deal with, so we'll see how that plays out. But there is a likelihood that in 2013 we will have a major immigration debate in Congress and hopefully we'll get a bill that helps fix this system. What I'd like to do today in my speech is talk about where the U.S. Catholic bishops are in this debate, what their position is, and how the church can play a unique role in bringing the country together on this issue. First, let me talk about why the U.S. Catholic bishops are involved in this at all. Oftentimes we get questions, or why the bishops even care about immigration? Why is that an important issue? Why are we in the public square at all? Aren't we supposed to be a separated church and state society? I have to explain that, no, we do have a a right to have a voice in the public square. So what are the reasons that the church should be involved in this? First of all, it springs from the gospel, the gospel of Matthew specifically, where Christ himself was a migrant. 
an itinerant preacher that traveled throughout Galilee, who in Matthew had no place to lay his head. He lived the life of a migrant himself in preaching the gospel throughout Galilee. He also, in Matthew, was a refugee. He and the Holy Family fled the terror of Herod into Egypt. Today, Christ himself and the Holy Family would be considered refugees under U.S. law because they meet the definition. Christ also says in Matthew, you are a stranger and you welcome me. He encouraged us to welcome the stranger for what we do for the least of these you do unto me. So in the face of the migrant, we do see the face of Christ and we need to welcome the migrant. Secondly, this is an institutional issue for the church. And what do I mean by that? To borrow a phrase from a toy store, immigrants are us. The church has grown with the country on the wave of immigrants that have come to this country over the years. From the early 19th century, the early 20th century, we've had waves of immigrants from Europe, from Ireland, from Eastern Europe, now from Latin America. And the majority of these immigrants are Catholic. Immigrants that are coming today, 60 to 70 percent are of the Catholic faith. So we are an immigrant church. And we've worked with immigrants over the last 200 years. Besides the government, I would say we're the, the major institution in this country that have helped integrate immigrants into our country. Immigrants who come first go to their families, but where do they go second? Often to the parish door for acceptance and for support. Today we see the human consequences of a broken system in all of the Catholic services that the diocese and the bishops support in our social service programs, in our hospitals, in our schools, and certainly in our parishes, we see the human consequences of a broken immigration system, where every day an immigrant will come up to a priest or to a social service provider or to a health care provider and ask for some sort of assistance, particularly on helping a loved one get legal status or to prevent a loved one from being deported. So we are right in the middle of this reality, and we can speak to this reality. And third, we're involved because of the nature of the issue itself. Often in the media and the political debate, this issue is defined as an economic issue, a legal issue, a social issue. But ultimately, it's a humanitarian issue. It's about human beings. I can define the number, 12 million undocumented people and their families. It's about humans, and ultimately the policies that we support and that we enact are going to have an impact on human beings. Those are the reasons the church is involved. What does the church bring to the debate that is unique? How can we bridge the gap in this country? As I mentioned, 200 years of working with immigrants. We have the experience. We know their stories. We know the challenges that they face. We also act as a moral voice. Often in this debate, civility is lost. Our fellow human beings is described as illegals or other some sort of name that dehumanizes them. No, 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 no. The bishops say these are human beings. Yes, they've broken the law in many cases, but they're still human beings and they have God-given dignity and human rights. So the bishops can help balance that and create civility in the debate. Thirdly, unlike many of the actors in this debate, we're a global institution. We see the issue from all angles from where the immigrants are coming from, where they're going, along the route, and in receiving communities. And we think 
Ideally, the solution to the issue of illegal immigration lies regionally and globally. As the Holy Father indicated when he came in April 2008 on the plane over, the second question he answered was on immigration reform. And he talked about how countries have to work together to solve this issue. It's not just on one country, it's on several. And I get more into that. So the church has a unique role to play in this debate and actually an obligation to be in this debate. Why is our system broken and what is the reality of immigration that the bishops are responding to? Let me give you a few numbers. And for those of you who are sports fans or scientists or mathematicians, you know numbers usually don't lie. They get played with a lot (laughs) and spun a different way. But let me lay out some numbers for you that sort of paints a picture of the system that we have currently. Before the recession began, an estimate of 300,000 to 500,000 immigrants would enter the United States each year, either across the border, through a port of entry, 40% would overstay their visas, and they would be out of status. 90% would get jobs within six months of arriving. So that suggests there is a market for work, at least before the recession, for immigrants in several industries in our economy service, construction, agriculture predominantly. But in the system that we have right now, there are only 5,000 green cards, and a green card is permanent residence card to allow people to come in as immigrants into the United States for unskilled workers. Now, there are a few what we call guest worker programs where some can come in temporarily, but those are rarely used by business now. So if you do the math... That's why we have such a large undocumented population. We don't have a way for them to come in to work and then go home if they want. The system doesn't account for them, account for their labor. Over the last 10 years, our country spent as much as $150 billion on immigration enforcement. That's more than many of the federal enforcement agencies that you know, like the FBI. Last year, we spent $16 billion on immigration enforcement. But over the same time period, the number of undocumented has increased by approximately 50%. 7 million undocumented, more or less in the year 2000, 11 to 12 million in 2010. So clearly, this enforcement-only strategy, where we've also tripled the number of Border Patrol agents as well, has not worked in its stated goal of limiting illegal immigration. Really what our policy is in this country, it's very incongruent. At the border, we have a keep out sign, but at the workplace, there's a sign that says help wanted. Again, this is before the recession, and I'm confident that we'll be back at some point. So the system itself isn't working. The number of those coming outside of the law is increasing. And additionally, and of concern to those of us here in the room, is how is it impacting our fellow human beings and fellow Catholics? Just last year, the administration deported 411,000 immigrants out of the country, which is a record. But in doing so, they deported 98,000 parents of U.S. citizen children, families that are divided, families that have a U.S. citizen in their household. Since the year 2000, there have been 7,000 people who have died in the American desert trying to cross the border. And this is not to also include the fact that many immigrants face exploitation in the workplace, abuse in some situations, and constantly live in fear. So we have a system that, first of all, is not working, and enforcement only is not working, but it also has a human toll on people who are trying to arrive and support their families. 
Now, I'll get to the point of, well, they've come illegally, etc. I'm not going to ignore that issue because it's a real issue. There are two moral issues here. There's a micro issue, if you will, and there's a macro issue. The micro issue is that we have a system where people are suffering. They're suffering and their families are being divided. Some are dying in the desert, and that has to change. But there's a macro issue here as well, and that's the system, and that's the global view. If the world were a chessboard, migrants would be pawns. They would be the ones protecting the sovereigns, protecting the kings, and are easily disposed of. And that's not just in receiving countries, but it's in sending countries. Before the recession again, Mexican immigrants sent $120 billion to Mexico in remittances. That's their third source of capital in that country after oil and tourism. In other words, in Mexico and other sending countries, the policy de facto is go north and be sure to send back money. This, again, is a system that doesn't work and impacts human beings. Should a migrant have to be compelled to come to the United States to support their family and dignity? Should they be subject to trafficking? Should they be subject to smuggling? The church says no. So there's a macro issue and there's a micro issue. And we've come into the world in the 21st century where we lived in a globalized world. We can trade communications in an instant. I mean, I go on a trip and I'm amazed that you have a cell phone that can call from the Middle East to Chicago. I'm like, wow. You know, we trade capital at a moment's notice. We trade goods. We've got a system for all of that. But for labor, for human beings, uh uh-uh. Don't you cross that border. We need to start thinking about how that system can be changed so that human beings are protected. In a nutshell, we cannot accept the sweat equity and the labor of migrants that work in many of these industries without offering them some protection of the law. It's not the American way. And that's really what the reality is. And the reason that we haven't fixed the system is is because if no one's complaining, don't fix it. Businesses get their workers, the economy gets their contributions, and the losers, frankly, in many cases, are the migrants. I was in a meeting once with Commerce Secretary Gutierrez during the Bush administration with 20 businesses, and I raised my hand. I said, well, maybe we should create policies in sending countries so that there are jobs there and they don't come. And one of the business people looked at me and said, well, then how are we going to get our workers? I was like, wow, I see what's going on here. So it's the system that needs to change, where human beings are coming to support their families and are working and contributing, but they get scapegoated. They're not given any form of relief. They're not protected, and their families are not protected. This is a moral issue that the bishops see and want to correct. So what do the bishops propose? And what the solution is has been debated for the last 25 years. I think the polls show and Catholics support majority a solution, provided that we don't have to come back in 20 years and do it again, that the issue solved by and large. There's no magic bullet here, believe me. There will always be irregular immigration in our society. What we want to do is minimize it, maximize the legal side so that people are protected, and everyone's playing by the same rules. So what do the bishops support? First of all, that we should have a path to citizenship for the 11 million that are in this country. And again, this is probably the most controversial issue you'll hear about in debate. Oftentimes, this is referred to amnesty. It's sort of the axis around which the debate revolves. And it also involves rule of law, etc. What would a path to citizenship do? First of all, it would help those 98,000 parents who were deported because they'll have some legal status and their families 
will be able to stay together. They'd also be able to be better integrated into our society because they would have the rights that we all do. It also would help our security situation. And you think, boy, that doesn't make sense. Explain that to me. Well, it's like draining the swamp. If all the undocumented immigrants come and register with the government and we know who they are and we make them play by the rules and we make them pay all their taxes, you drain the swamp and what's left? The alligators and the snakes are at the bottom who are the criminal aliens who really are a threat to us. It frees up law enforcement to pursue those who are threatening to us, who are harmful to us. So there is a security side to this as well. Now you say, well, they broke the law. We're rewarding lawbreakers here. They should all go home. Well, perhaps they should all go home, but they're not going home, and we can't afford to send them all home. And the other question is, do we necessarily want to have them all to come home? Are there benefits to having our fellow human beings here working hard in different industries and building our communities? The church is not saying there shouldn't be a penalty for someone crossing the border or breaking the law. The disagreement is on what the penalty should be, what's commensurate to the offense. The bishops would say, well, make them pay a fine, make them pay their back taxes, make them learn English, make them keep working, and let them get in the back of the line. We're not giving them an amnesty in this instance. Like in 1986, the law was written like, if you arrive at this date, you're going to be able to adjust your status, get a green card, and eventually be citizenship. I would consider that an amnesty, forgiveness. The bishop is saying, you're going to have to go through a process. You're not going to break in line, and you're going to earn your citizenship. And for those that do that, wouldn't we want those who really want to be American citizens to be part of our society? The other side would say, forget that. Deport them, never let them come back again. So that's the gap there. No one disagrees that they broke the law and they should pay a penalty. The issue is what the penalty should be. And the also the issue is, what is in the best interest of our country? We would make the argument it's the best interest of our country to have these people integrated. So we will fight, and the bishops will fight for a path to citizenship. Now, there are some who are suggesting that the compromise is we'll give these 11 million people just legal status, no chance for citizenship. We'll give them legal status, we won't deport them, we'll give them work authorization, but otherwise they have no rights. The bishops will fight that. Do we want to sanction a permanent underclass in this society? one of those who have rights and one who don't, we've been down that road before to disastrous results. The second principle that the bishops will pursue is, of course, family unity. And I mentioned how family unity is very important. There have been threats to the immigration system on the family side. Family reunification has been the cornerstone of the U.S. system since its conception. And there are those who want to eliminate the family immigration system, replace it with business visas, and not allow people to come in and join their families. The bishops, of course, will resist that. The bishops won't oppose the increase of visas for businesses, especially high-tech visas, but why should they be taken at the expense of families and getting families together? In 2007, the Bush administration proposed what was called a point system, like Canada, where an immigrant is allowed in based on their qualifications. So a PhD in engineering would get 10 points, but the child of a U.S. citizen or the spouse of a U.S. citizen would get two points. And the bishops opposed that because, first of all, it was not based on the American way that families are the cornerstone of society, but also that we'd have a system where we're all only bringing in business and families would be undermined. So family unity will be an important theme that the bishops will pursue and defend.
There's also the issue of future flows of people coming. This goes to how are we going to solve the problem long term. So in 1986, when they passed the last legalization, they did not account for the fact that once people here are legalized, there are going to be more people coming. And that's why we have the problem we have today. One of the solutions out there is create a system. Remember I talked about 5,000 versus 500,000? Create a system that increases the number of visas for people to come in and work. They don't have to stay. They can come and go, and many migrants like to do that. But let's have a future flow system, a worker program that works for both U.S. workers, that they're protected, and that foreign-born workers are also protected. And from the business perspective, what does that do? It takes away the market of people coming across the border looking for work. It takes away the market of smugglers who prey upon migrants. You know what is the best business for smugglers to Mexico is when we build up our border because they increase their prices. We build a border wall. Okay, I can still get you through that border, but you're going to have to pay me $5,000 as opposed to $2,000. I mean, it's like the Smuggling Assistance Act when we do things like that. Let's create a system where people come through legally, orderly, safely, humanely. In, in security ways, we know who they are. We know where they're going. We know what they're going to do. We have a sense of who they are. Now we have no idea who's where and what they're doing. By imposing a legal system, we're able to do that. We're the only institution that's doing this in the debate are the push factors. Why are people coming? This is the church's answer to the border wall. Let's look at why people are migrating. I'm not saying let's send jobs to Mexico or jobs to Central America. Let's build cars there. That's not what I'm saying. But at a minimum, let's look at what our trade policies are and are they affecting these countries in a way that it's pushing people to come to the United States? Is there a way that we can mitigate that so that someone has the ability to support their family and dignity in their home country? Migrants don't do this lightly, come across Mexico and risk their lives. In fact, they would prefer to stay in their home countries and support their families. Let's find a way for them to do that. And in a broader way, let's find ways to stem illegal immigration other than just enforcement. We need a multi-pronged plan here that includes looking at root causes, that includes maybe legalizing the flow. It's got to be trial and error, but we can't just keep using enforcement, which clearly is not working. That's not to say that the bishops would not support enforcement in this bill or do not support the right of the sovereign to control its borders, which is part of Catholic social teaching. What the bishops would accept, and this is often the debates on the border, how are we sealing our borders? Let's look at the workplace. Again, I said, keep out, help wanted. There's a market for workers. So an employment verification system is something that the bishops would accept and a broader bill. As long as everyone's in the same system, as long as everyone's brought out of the shadows and allowed to be in that system legally, do we want two-tiered system of laborers who are in the system and those who are not, that undercuts wages, etc. Let's make sure everyone's in the system, and then we can control the workplace. And we also, with the future flow program, will still allow people to come in legally and get into the legal system. The bishops are trying to create a legal system as opposed to the current system, which is chaos and based on illegal behavior. So that's what the bishops are trying to achieve in this bill. Before I close, let me talk about two issues which I know are controversial, not only within the church, but within the country. There are issues of concern. What about the rule of law? And I know many, and I've been in speeches and debates before where 
but they broke the law. And I could say, yeah, well, we've all broken the law. I just got a speeding ticket a while back. And you can make the base on whether that's equal or not. But as I said, right now, there is no rule of law in our immigration system. There is no system where everyone's playing by the rules and you know exactly what you have to do to get where you want to be. What the bishops are proposing will help restore the rule of law, in our opinion. We'll transform a system that is chaos, where we don't know where people are coming from, what they're coming, they don't have status, into a system that's like, you have to be part of the system if you want to be in the system, and if you want to achieve your goals. You have to play by the rule of law. This, in our opinion, will help restore that rule of law that we've lost in the immigration system. Finally, I strongly believe that immigration is also a life issue. And I've explained that a bit earlier. The suffering that occurs under the current system. People that have died in the desert who come only to support their families. I'm not saying there aren't bad apples. Certainly there are bad apples, and we want to get those bad apples. But they're coming to support their family and support their children. Do they deserve a death sentence for that? Do they deserve to be exploited? Do they deserve to be abused? Do they deserve to be scapegoated for our social ills? The bishops would say no. And it is a matter of life and death for many of them. And every life is precious, and the church is called to defend life in all its stages. In conclusion, I think that the Catholic community, the Catholic Church, is well positioned to help lead the nation to where we need to be on this issue, to help bridge the gap. We have the ability to reach on both sides of the aisle, to the Democratic side, the Republican side, with the message of, let's come to a consensus here. The final bill will not make everyone happy, certainly won't make the bishops happy, but we need to move in that direction to improve the system. And I think the Catholic community, and you included, can help bring us there. I'd like to thank you for receiving me today. And before I close, let me just give you a website that you can get more information, www.justiceforimmigrants.org. That's all one word. That's the bishop's website that talks about these issues. Thank you very much. That was the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops Director of Policy and Public Affairs, Kevin Appleby, with the second talk of the day from the Catholic Witness in a Nation Divided Conference. It was Ave Maria Radio's first conference. It was held on January 12, 2013. Following the immigration talk, Al Cresta and Kevin Appleby were joined by the Acton Institute's Father Robert Sirico for a panel discussion. Here is Al Cresta. Father Sirico, would you go ahead and give a brief response to Kevin's remarks? Well, what I do not want to do today is uh, act the role of the policy wonk and descend into the uh, details of the particular bill that is being formulated at the present time. What I'd like to do is bring together several elements that I think would enhance the debate and deepen the debate and meet the core concerns of the bishops in their area of competency, which is that root and foundation of all Catholic social teaching, the dignity of the human person, and see how we can bring some of these elements in. And this is the area that the Acton Institute works in, is the whole question of economics. I see business as a potential real support. It's not only the immigrant who has an interest in economic well-being, it's also business people. Business people are not 
the enemies of workers. Business people are the uh, cooperators, the collaborators with workers because they provide the jobs which, by the way, make all of our lives a little easier. Are there areas of exploitation? Absolutely. Should the rule of law apply against businesses that violate the dignity of human beings in those regards, exploitation, etc.? Absolutely. But that's not what I'm talking about in the normative sense. In the normative sense, the way people are advantaged, the way people better themselves, is not even through charity, as important as charity is, is through work. It's through their access to work. And we need a system of law rooted in ethics that allow people to work. And so with that as a backdrop, I'd like to just mention a few things that I think add to the elements of complexity in the debate about immigration. And the most obvious, and this is what I hear when I address the question, generally in uh, conservative audiences when I'm asked every time I go to uh, Texas or when I go to Arizona, these questions come up. And there is at least an element, and has been historically, an element of racism that is involved. These people look differently, they eat differently, they speak differently, they socialize differently, and you hear an element of that. Sometimes it's explicit, sometimes it is more subtle. We know where we stand as a church on that. We are the universal church. We are the church that disregards ethnic distinctions as not being essential. Important culturally to given people, absolutely. But the person's dignity is not predicated on their ethnicity. But as part of this complexification with regard to work, when we look at the things that impede our welcome of immigrants today, as distinct from years ago, which was largely a cultural racial problem, the nativists that many of our ancestors had to face as they came into this country were faced with accusations of these people are not teetotalers, you know, all of those kinds of stereotypes. Today, there are various elements that are at play that want to impede immigration for their own reasons. And I think this largely has to do with the overall politicization of our society, where various political groups, parties, and interests want to control the flow of immigration because they see a threat on one side or the other. I'm thinking of those who are interested in raising wages in such a way that make immigrant labor less attractive to business. Immigrant labor is willing to come precisely because they see an advantage from the uh, context that they're coming from to the context they're coming to. And if we raise the level of required wages that are paid to such people, then you get into this whole element of illegality because people will then attempt to undercut that artificial wage level. I think also we have to understand that it is a wonderful thing. It is a good sign in general when people are attracted to come to our country. It says something about the message of our country, about freedom, about prosperity. This is our history as an immigrant people, isn't it? But if we alter the incentives for people to come, we then draw from a different category of people. In other words, if we are guaranteeing people a whole set of benefits simply by crossing the border, then we create a cultural phenomenon, an economic phenomenon that is not desirable. 
So I think these are some of the hard questions that have to be looked at, and they have to be looked at in the way we look at our own welfare system. And I think the retrieval of the principle of subsidiarity helps us to a very great extent because to the extent that people can be helped at local levels and be free to help people at local levels, then I think the real needs of human beings will be met as opposed to political interests offering these kinds of services and benefits. Another, and this is probably the most important point that I think could really act as a bridge in this debate in the political divide between those who are left and right. The Kaufman Foundation for Entrepreneurship did a study in 2011 that found this fact. They investigate entrepreneurship, and this study was done over a 15-year period. And this may surprise you to learn that immigrants create jobs at an incredibly unprecedented rate. And I quote from the study, immigrants are more than twice as likely to start businesses each month in 2010 than were native-born people. I think if we can look at the immigrant population as naturally entrepreneurial, why do I say that? Because of some genetic thing? No. It's that they are coming, and that tells you something right there. They are ambitious. They want to seek out a better way of living. They will look for opportunities, and that right there tells you a great potential that they have. And so I think if we can design our reception of them in accord with that reality, which means enhancing their ability to build businesses, we can get into the details of that if we want, I think that would augment the whole question. I think there'll be resistance to that for the political reasons that I mentioned. Finally, let me just mention this uh, one last point. And that is that Mr. Appleby mentioned the difficulty of the um, emigrating countries, that is the countries that are sending the immigrants. How do we help them to build societies that are more prosperous so there's less of a need for people to feel the burden to immigrate? The way in which we do that is not by subsidizing the dictatorships that they live under, not by sending state-to-state aid to the bureaucracies that are stifling them and inhibiting their own human rights or smothering their economies. It's by dropping barriers of trade, tariffs, and other various mechanisms that inhibit the capacity of people in their own countries to trade with the United States. What we do now, the normative way in which we aid foreign countries, is by sending their governments money. I think this is a very sad mistake, and I give you as class A example of that, Haiti, that had billions of dollars poured into it. And if you've been reading the newspapers in the last few days, you see that virtually nothing has happened for the poorest of the poor in Haiti. If, however... We can create the environment where we drop our trade barriers and enhance our capacity for businesses to trade with businesses. You build up the ethic of business, the habituation to work and entrepreneurship within those ascending countries and raise their own level of prosperity. The Acton Institute has just created, I'll give you another website, www.povertycure, one word, dot org. It's a whole study of trade over aid from the mouths of people in developing countries. So I think these are just some of the elements that I'd like to kind of throw on the table and see if they would help deepen our debate. Very good. Thank you. As I talk with people on this question, many times they know that the bishops are not policy makers. They're not in Congress. 
And so sometimes it comes down to this. Well, what are we really committed to? You know, give me three things that I have to accept as part of Catholic teaching. You know, you mentioned one, that the state has authority to set its borders. Okay, that's one. Another one, it seems to me, is that people have a right to migrate. They have a right to seek the good of their family, and that borders are important, but they're secondary to the well-being of persons. I mean, borders are to serve people. People are not to serve borders. Okay. Those two things seem to me to be undeniable. What else do we have to commit to intellectually here? Well, I think the next natural principle is the preservation of the family unit. Okay. which is a common theme of the bishops. What's not talked about are the social consequences of families that are divided between countries. There's a story out of Houston where there was a father dying in Houston and she had an undocumented wife and their kids wanted to get there before the father died and they were denied entrance mm-hmm. because they didn't have papers. Yeah. I mean, that's an example of where, come on. Let's have some compassion here. So I would say family unity certainly is one of those things. You say the right to migrate. The first principle of the bishops is the right not to migrate, and that goes to what Father Sirico was just saying. What does that mean, the right not to migrate? That you don't feel compelled to cross the desert uh, at risk of your life in order to support your family. We need to have policies that enable people to stay where they are in a global sense. And this phenomenon is not just U.S., Mexico, Central America. This phenomenon is happening globally. So I would add those two elements. Okay. Right to not migrate, right, right to migrate, family unity, and then states uh, have a responsibility to preserve their borders and they have a right to preserve their borders. They also have an, op- an obligation to use their resources for the human good. Okay, those are the areas that Catholics can't disagree on, right? Those are the things that everybody has to agree on. We have to remember that the right to migrate doesn't obligate any particular country to right. receive them. Right, and, because and the country, that's also in the, the country has to, there has to be prudent use of resources. Laws. Yeah, yeah, right. And yet the test under John the Twenty Third, those countries who have the economic ability or ability have a higher obligation in some cases. For example, the U.S. may have a higher obligation than El Salvador would. Yes. Uh, to accommodate to whom much is given, migration. much will be demanded. Right. No. But the sovereign also has the right to determine what's best for the common good of their citizenry as well. Very good. Here's one that is actually has come up many times, and uh, I think Catholics are, don't quite know what to do with it. How do you address the language issue to assimilate all these migrants if they don't learn the language, if they don't learn the culture? It's not good for us, you know. So what do you say to that? Well, first of all, let me say that I didn't disagree with anything that Father Sirico said, and I welcome all those contributions. And the one elephant in the room that's not talked about is the cultural fear of the immigrant. And that was a big issue which was prevalent in 2006 and 2007. They're not assimilating. They're not integrating. They're staying in their neighborhoods. They're not learning the language. We did some focus groups a while back, and the thing that resonated the most was, are they learning English? Are they becoming Americans? And part of what the bishops are trying to achieve is more of an integration policy in this country. I mean, the church really is a major institution that helps people learn English, helps people learn the culture, etc. And people are still integrating at the rate they've integrated in in hundreds of years. The first generation is not going to integrate as clearly as their children are. And by the time the grandparents come, they're fully American. 
and you can try to advance that process with more English instruction programs and civics instruction programs than there are now. But that's a huge issue. I made the argument that we failed in 2007, first because of that issue, the social fear issue, and that we didn't have an integration policy. And second, because the government at that time was at all-time lows after Katrina and couldn't implement anything, and there was fear about that as well. Here's where I want to um, say something that may be um, somewhat controversial. I think that immigrants are among the group most deleteriously affected by the prevalent politically correct mentality in our society. Here's why I say that. There is an element among our elite that seems to think that culture is pristine and must be put under a glass dome and preserved at all costs. That is not what culture is. Culture is dynamic. Culture bumps into other cultures. It changes. It blends. Italy introduced the fork to the French. Don't tell them that. Look at, look at uh, Afro-Cuban music. Afro-Cuban music, all of this. How is it that in my grandparents' generation, my grandparents both came over from Italy about the turn of the 20th century uh, with very little money, you know this Ancestry.com, and you can go and look and actually see the manifests from the ships. My grandfather had $35 in his pocket when he came to the United States. I can imagine how long it took to get that money. They came. He met my grandmother here, also from Italy, also immigrated about the same time. They had 13 children. Only the two oldest spoke Italian. All of my other aunts and uncles, 11 of them, don't speak Italian. Oh, they understand the curse words and <laughs> and the food and all of that, but they didn't speak Italian. I am the only one in that generation from them down to all of my cousins who speaks Italian. And how is it that they immigrated? There weren't the kinds of politically correct programs in our public schools that mandate people speak certain languages or do certain things. There was another thing, and this is the controversial thing, the politically correct mentality in employment. They knew in order for them to be able to succeed in business, they had to speak English. And there were no courts where they could go and sue and the ACLU would help them to fight a business because a business wants a receptionist to be able to speak a language properly. Those kinds of proper tutoring factors that are culturally integrating factors are inhibited when we have a society that is so heavenly politicized. And so I think it's a wonderful opportunity to think of culture as dynamic or we get to learn. If I have any regret from my grandparents' culture, their transition is precisely that they lost the language. And there were no programs that demanded that either. So maybe the church needs to be teaching second generation immigrants their historical language. Let me pick up a question. We've been talking largely about citizen-related questions. Let's go to parent questions. What do parents say to their children? This immigration issue is out there. It gets talked about. Uh, you never know what kids are picking up from television or from their buddies. What should a Catholic parent say to orient their children, say, from uh, late tween age through to mid-adolescence? Well, first of all, young people are more pro-immigrant these days than those of us who are older. And I don't know what explains that. Some of you might have heard the DREAM Act, which allows young people. This explains it. Oh, okay. Technology. <laughs> Tech, all right. That explains why I don't understand the, the end of it either. 
But in my experience, young people are more open to immigrants and people coming from other countries than maybe previous generations were. And because of technology, because of access to information, and I think because they are raised in a way that parents are saying you need to be open to all people and treat them as equals. I'm not a parent. I hope to be someday. But if I had children, I would try to impart upon them the importance of treating people equally and accepting them according to the gospel mandate. I'm sure if I did have kids and they were complaining about what they were eating, I would say, do you know how many kids do not have food? (laughs) I'm sure that's a common refrain among parents. So that's what I would do. I don't think I'd add anything to that. That's fine. Let me go to something which has been a great frustration for I know many people. This doesn't seem like a hard issue. It's complicated in some respects, but America kind of prides itself on being an open society, right? There is the rule of law, but how much can you do when you got, you know, 12 million undocumented here? You're not going to deport 12 million people. So who doesn't want this problem solved? And who is benefiting from keeping this problem unresolved? I don't think the question is so much who doesn't want it resolved, but who wants it resolved to their advantage? And there, I will just throw this out, like it or not, unions. Unions are deathly afraid of immigrants, as they are of removing trade barriers because of the competition in labor that would result from that. So I think unions are one of the elements in our society that don't want that. I think that the bureaucracy that has an interest in a growing welfare state wants immigration under the conditions that they get to incorporate them into a whole host of welfare programs. I'm not saying we leave people destitute, but I'm think, I, I think the best thing to do is to allow people to um, uh, funnel their charitable efforts and support efforts according to the principle of subsidiarity and through agencies such as the church. And I think also a diminishing concern, but I think it's still uh, prevalent, is this kind of a racist attitude toward people who are different, toward people who are brown skin, uh, those kinds of things. Two points, and it was went to my point in the speech. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. I mean, which constituency is most harmed under this system? Undocumented immigrants. How much political power do they have? Not much. So we have a system where these people are being employed, they're working, and a lot of times they're paying taxes and Social Security. They pay billions of dollars into Social Security, believe it or not, hmm. without receiving it. So it's a system that everyone can win except for the migrants themselves. Are you saying that big agribusinesses is benefiting from this then? Well, I'm not going to castigate any certain business sector. The fact of the matter is that over 50% of agricultural workers are undocumented okay. and don't have the regular wages applied to them. Okay. Now, I'm not, now, agribusiness, to their credit, is trying to strike a deal where they can bring workers in more easily in return for legalizing them. They yeah. want to be legalized as well. And the business community has been active in trying to get immigration reform. In defense of labor, they're coming around. There are some in the labor movement that still oppose it, but there are others that support it as well. Very good. You know, if I could draw a simile or at least a comparison between um, this situation and apartheid. A lot of people don't realize that under apartheid, it was the Afrikaners who were the real enforcers of apartheid. 
that was the Dutch Afrikaners, and that their main employment was in the state sector. The British section of South Africa, which was largely the business sector, were very much against apartheid, and not for some noble liberal PC reason. It's just that it was so complicated to get people to work that these regulations prevented them from getting the kind of employment that they needed. And I think this is a similar kind of thing. Now, maybe some of it's weakening with the realities that the unions are having to face these days. But I think that's a good thing to keep in mind. One more point, Al. There's also a very strong anti-immigrant movement in this country. It's not large. I mean, the majority of Americans support immigration reform, but they're very organized and they're very well funded. And I must say they're rooted in eugenics. If you look at some of the websites, Federations of American for Immigration Reform and other of the anti-immigrant organizations, their founder, John Tanton, who is from Michigan, is a father of the eugenics movement. Another reason why we should oppose them. I got to agree. Lots of good stories on the eugenics movement. In fact, there were only two religious communities that stood against the eugenics movement of the early 20th century. It was Catholics and Biblicist Protestants. And Catholics actually had the better of the argument here because they were a little more intellectually astute. But the eugenics movement is a big deal, and there's a new eugenics movement arising. So, But that's for another conference. Can I make one more quick comment? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the other thing is getting those who are supportive of this issue to pick up the phone and to call their legislator. And I won't speak for every American. I'll speak for myself. A lot of times political issues, you pay attention when it impacts you impacts your health care, impacts your budget every year. People can't grasp that immigration is impacting our lives every day. We don't see it as clearly sometimes. So there might not be that motivation of, right, we really need to change the system. We need to get organized on our side to pick up the phone and let the legislators know we want this done now. Yeah. Let me just say, there are many questions here that weren't answered, and we're not going to have time to answer them. I tried to answer the questions which seemed to me to have the greatest applicability or were in some cases the most mysterious. I'm going to hang on to these and make sure we integrate them into the programming that we do. So eventually, all these questions will be answered. And I want to thank you, Father Shriko, for joining us from the Acton Institute. And, of course, Kevin from the USCCB, thanks so much for being with us. Very helpful. On this edition of Putting on the Mind of Christ, we listen to Session 2 of Ave Maria Radio's first conference, Catholic Witness in a Nation Divided. The topic of this session was immigration. Our speaker was Kevin Appleby, Director of Policy and Public Affairs for the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops. Father Robert Sirico joined Kevin Appleby and Al Cresta on the panel that followed the talk. As this program is being produced, the immigration law that the panel spoke about was being made ready to go before the U.S. Senate Committee for a vote to send it to the full Senate for consideration. This bill was a bipartisan effort, but more than 200 amendments were offered, literally at the last minute. Many were so-called poison bills, that the sponsoring senators knew would kill any possibility of passage into law. Stay with us. You are listening to Putting on the Mind of Christ on Ave Maria Radio. Putting on the Mind of Christ is a compilation of presentations, talks, and news recorded over the past couple of decades. References to people, facts, and opinions heard were made at the time of the recording. Welcome back to Putting on the Mind of Christ. This is your host, Henry Root. In my looking back at this series, there's been a lot of dark talk, 
future doesn't look rosy, but we've read the book, Jesus Wins. But I'd like to share our bright spot with all of you. Think back to something over two years ago. All of the pro-life websites and emails were alive with excitement. One of Planned Parenthood's abortuary managers in Texas had crossed the line after assisting in the killing of a pre-born baby. Her name is Abby Johnson. After realizing just what she had participated in, she cleared out her desk, left the abortuary, crossed the street, and joined the prayer warriors. That summer, she was on the road sharing her story. One of her stops was at Sacred Heart Church in Dearborn, Michigan. I was there, recorder in hand, in the summer of 2011. Here is part of Abby Johnson's story. And, you know, my first thought is, God is hilarious, number one. But I just think, wow, when you open yourself up and say yes to God, you better be ready. Because if you're ready, he's always ready. I tell people all the time, that day, on October 5th, I was sitting in my office. I had already seen the ultrasound guided abortion. that totally changed my life. And I was sitting at my desk, and I'm looking out the window, and I'm not knowing where to go. And I'm just thinking, please, God, just... I'm looking at these, these two women sitting out there praying, and I'm feeling like God is telling me to go talk to them. And I'm like, no way. Anybody, God, anybody, please. I mean, I will talk to somebody I haven't talked to in five years, okay? Please, not them. Anybody else? Give me somebody. <laughs> and he just kept saying, no, this is it. These are the people. This is it. For eight years, they've been reaching out to you. They've been pleading with you. They've been trying to be your friend. This is it. And I thought, okay, dang it. And so I got up and left. But I'm telling you, if I would have known that day, at that time, that my life would be this right now, I probably would have stayed put in that chair. Because that would have been so overwhelming. I would have thought, no, I won't be able to handle it. I mean, first of all, that day on October 5th, I didn't even think I was really pro-life. I thought, I mean, I'm not really like them, right? I mean, I'm not really pro-life. I'm sort of pro-life, and I'm never going to be outside of a clinic praying. Never. That's not me. I'm not annoying like them. (laughs) I'm not a nuisance like them. I don't harass people like them. I mean, I need their help right now, but that's it. I'm not going to be like them. I didn't know that just three weeks later, I would be standing in front of my own clinic talking to the people that I used to supervise. And that's what God did for me. Every day I would wake up and I'd think, okay, what now? And he would show me what I need to do, and then he would dump a lot of grace on it. And he would show me a little bit more, and he would dump a lot of grace. And that's the only way that I'm standing in front of you right now. He gave me the perfect amount of grace for every single step of the way. I couldn't have done it alone. I left my job. All my friends were gone. My church kicked me out. I was Episcopalian. And there, you know, anything goes, right? I mean, their doctrine, their universal doctrine is pro-choice. And so when I became pro-life, they didn't want anything to do with me anymore. And so I was gone. I was told to leave. And so I did. That was my faith community. My friends were gone. My faith community was gone. My job was gone. Everything was gone. I was starting over. I mean, I had my family, but they were freaking out. They didn't know what to do. I mean, they were excited. They were thrilled. They were ecstatic. But they were just thinking, 
what are you doing? What are you going to do for money? What I mean, what what's going on in your head right now? You have never stepped out in faith like this ever before in your whole life, and now you're stepping out this big. And they were excited, but they're my parents, so I mean, they're parents, right? So I mean, they're nervous, and I felt very alone, but yet I still felt very comforted because I knew that I had done what was right. And I think sometimes being pro-life feels just like that. Sometimes we feel very alone. Sometimes it's not easy. Sometimes we're not always in similar company. Today, I was in the airport getting a very swanky massage in an airport chair. And there I am in a very vulnerable position. And the guy says, what do you do? I'm a pro-life speaker. And he said, oh, okay. I always know what that means. <laughs> oh, okay. I thought, please don't hurt me. And he said, you know, oh, okay, so, well, tell me about that. And I, you know, I started telling my story about how I'd worked at Planned Parenthood for eight years. I had directed a center and, and how one day my eyes were open. I, I had seen the corruption at Planned Parenthood. I'd seen how they wanted to increase their number of abortions and how they said it was about prevention, but in the end, it was really just about making money, and, and the best way they could make money was off of abortion. And I told him about the day in the ultrasound room, in the abortion room, where I saw this 13-week-old child recoil and move away and struggle to get away from that abortion probe, and what it looked like to watch that child crumble and struggle and be torn limb from limb in its mother's womb. And I was telling him that, and I was telling him, how there's millions and millions of abortions done every year because of sex selection. And how there's thousands of abortions done every year on babies that could live outside of their mother's wombs. And how those procedures are done. And I was telling him all of these things about abortion and, and he just said, wow, I had no idea. I'm very pro-choice, but I had no idea. But you're very pro-choice, but you have no idea what you are believing? And I find that that, unfortunately, runs rampant, even inside of Planned Parenthood, even with the workers, even with the volunteers, and most definitely with their clientele. We had people out there praying. We, we have an advocacy group there, a coalition flight there out there 85% of the time that we're open. We were open, so we'd have all these clients that'd come in and they'd say, you know, I don't understand why those people are out there. It's not like you guys do abortions. And I'm thinking, yeah, like every day, you know? These are clients, people that had come to us sometimes for years. They had no idea that we were a functioning abortion clinic. No idea. I meet people all the time. I said, you know, yeah, you know, Planned Parenthood, largest abortion chain in the country. What? I thought they just did birth control. People have no idea. I think if Planned Parenthood is synonymous with abortion, for me and probably for you, but I'm telling you right now, I bet half of this country, when they think of Planned Parenthood, a lot of them probably don't even know what that means or what they do at all, but many of them probably think, oh, that's such a great organization. They do all that low-cost and free health care. Why do they think that? Because that's what Planned Parenthood is telling them they do. And they're listening. Why are they listening? Because we're not speaking loudly enough. 
you know, I've been a student of the pro-life movement for a long time. People are like, oh, you're so new to this movement, you don't know what you're talking about. Let me tell you something. I was on every national listserv. I got every email. I watched you guys like a hawk. That was part of my job, knowing what was going on in the pro-life movement. I looked on all these websites all the time. I knew what was going on four days for life. I knew when you guys were having your rallies. I knew what was going on with our local pregnancy center. I looked on their websites all the time. Operation Rescue, all those groups. I was on their list. I mean, I probably got 20 pro-life emails in my email box a day. I was on every email. I read through all of them. Man, I knew more about the pro-life movement than most pro-lifers. And that was part of the job. But I wonder how many of us as pro-lifers check out our opponents. I wonder how many of us frequently go to Planned Parenthood's website, our local abortion industry's website, and see what they are doing. What are they saying? What are they telling their patients? You think a war has ever been won without knowing the strategy of the opposition? Do you think that ever happens? You think you just go into a war and say, I mean, I know we're fighting this guy, but I don't know anything about him. We're just going to start shooting. hope we win. Is that how wars are fought? No. But for some reason, the pro-life movement thinks that that's how we're going to win this. We're not going to win it that way. For so many years, the pro-choice, the pro-abortion movement has been outsmarting us. And we've got to come together as a group. Whatever it takes, we've got to come together. We've got to research our opposition. We've got to know their next move. We've got to know what they're saying. If a woman comes up to you and she says, well, I just went to Planned Parenthood and they told me this about Plan B. What's Plan B? Some of you probably don't even know what Plan B is. It's the morning after pill. This is the morning after pill. Is that an abortifacient? Yeah. Well, how is that an abortifacient? You need to know. We are the mouthpieces for the pro-life movement. We are the branding. It's us. We don't have millions and millions and millions of dollars like Planned Parenthood to spend on ads and billboards and TV spots during Oprah and Grey's Anatomy and all these popular shows. We don't have that. We have us. And we have the truth. And if I know something is true, I want to go out there and I will scream it from the rooftop. I want to tell everybody. No. I'm right. I have the truth. I'm right. You're wrong. I want everybody to know. But for some reason, we hide. We hide in this movement. We don't even know what's going on in this movement. If I say Mifeprex, do you know what that is? It's the first step in medication abortion. That's what causes death of the baby in medication abortion. We need to know these things. We've got to be on our game. And I tell everyone that we have got to, as a people, as a pro-life people, start being active in this movement. We've got to start living out our pro-life beliefs. I know a lot of people that they come and they come to banquets, they eat food, and they write a $300 check, and they're, oh, good, that was my pro-life deed of the year. But that's not enough. We've got one in three women choosing abortion in this country. Over 70% of those women are Christians. And I don't know if you think that number is high, but I actually thought it would be higher. I thought that was low. I still think it's low. Because almost every woman that came into my office to have an abortion, she told me she'd been a Christian. She told me she'd always gone to church. She told me where she went to church. She told me how much she loved God. And she told me she'd always been pro-life. And we had this joke in the clinic. We said, oh, yeah, yeah, all these pro-lifers are pro-life, except in cases of rape, incest, and me. 
we can't be those types of pro-lifers. For eight years of my life, I lived kind of in shame. If that would have been me today as a Planned Parenthood employee getting that massage, somebody said, what do you do for a living? I would have said, I work at a doctor's office. I wouldn't have said, oh, I work at Planned Parenthood, largest abortion chain in the country, proud of it. Is that what people say? You're not proud to work in the abortion industry. Nobody grows up wanting to work in the abortion industry. Anybody here, their dream was to work as an abortionist or work in the abortion industry? No. Nobody grows up wanting to have an abortion. I've had two abortions when I was a little girl. I wanted to be a mommy. I didn't grow up wanting to kill my children. I grew up wanting to have children. But at some point in time, we start going down these paths and, and we start making these decisions and these decisions are filled with pain and regret and hurt. And those painful decisions lead us into the doors of the abortion clinic. And sometimes we end up as the abortion patient. Sometimes we end up as the abortion worker. Sometimes we end up as the abortion volunteer. Sometimes we end up as all three of those. And that was my story. I didn't want that for my life. I didn't grow up that way. I knew better than that. I grew up in a Christian home. I grew up with Christian parents. I grew up in a pro-life home. I grew up in a good church. I had everything going for me. But somehow, I ended up being the 2008 Planned Parenthood Employee of the Year. What a change from that little girl that I started as. And it can happen just like that. One bad decision leads to another that leads to another. And it's so fast. And one of the problems in our country right now, one of the problems with our Christian society, is that we are so apathetic to what's going on inside of our churches. It makes me so sad. I grew up in a church I guess the church consider themselves pro-life. I never once heard a sermon talking about abortion from the pulpit. Not once. Even now, I go around, I visit, you know, all different churches. I sit in worship services. I mean, all different denominations. Unless it's Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. I guarantee I'm going to hear something then. But unless it's that Sunday, I never hear anything about the Sanctity of Human Life up at the pulpit. But yet... Over 70% of women having abortions are in church with us. I hear people say, well, you know, I mean, that's what they're saying. They're Christian. No, they are. They're sitting right next to you in the pew. They're in your Bible study. They're in your youth group. They're people you know, people you love, people you care about. They're just not telling you about it because they don't know they can. They don't know where to go. They may not know the church is a safe place to turn to. Somebody's talking about it. We've got groups for everything in our churches, right? We've got divorce groups, grief groups, I want to stop smoking groups, my kids, terrible groups. I mean, we've got groups for everything. But yet, we are too scared to talk about one of the most pervasive issues in our society, and that's abortion. That's sad. I don't think there's any more appropriate place to talk about abortion than at the pulpit. We're not talking about a human rights issue. This is a spiritual battle. This is a spiritual issue. God is creating these children, each one of them, for a purpose, and we are snuffing them out because of whatever. Convenience, not the right sex, don't have enough money. I mean, you never have enough money to have a kid. Not the right time. And my boyfriend and I broke up. Whatever it is. You know, my kid's not perfect. Every child is put here 
for a purpose by God. We're not talking about it. We better start talking about it. Because this is a spiritual issue, but we are not putting on the full armor of God to fight it. And it's so easy, right? I mean, this is a pregnancy center. This is a pregnancy center group. It's so easy. I tell people, go to your church. Ask whoever, you know, is in charge of putting stuff in the bulletin. Hey, can we put a little box at the bottom of our bulletin every week? You know, it says, hey, need help with a pregnancy? Call here. If you had an abortion, call this pregnancy center. We're here to help. Maybe you can set up a little, you know, one of those cheapy Walmart round tables, you know. I mean, you should know that because you're going to have to buy like a million of them by the end of this because they're so cheap. You can buy a better one for like 20 bucks. You only have to replace four or five times. But anyway, you just get these little tables and you put them at the back of the church. You know, that's really weird. You just put it at the back of the church and you put some little brochures for the pregnancy center. Women will pick them up. I used to go to this church, this Baptist church. This is before I decided I didn't like them because they didn't like abortion. And I... Used to go by there all the time. I hated it because they had a pregnancy center thing up there. You know, I was working at Planned Parenthood, so I didn't like pregnancy centers. And I hated it because every time I'd walk by there, it'd be like full at the beginning of church, and at the end of church, totally wiped out, totally empty. Oh, it ticked me off. You know, I was like so mad. But the women in the church needed those services. These younger women in the church needed those services, and not always young women either. We see a growing number of women in their 40s and even their early 50s choosing abortion. People can have crisis pregnancies at any age. Then you know where to go. Then you know this is a safe place to go. And we know the majority of them are church-going people. So it makes sense to put the material then in the churches, right? We've got to get going. We've got to get active. We've got to get knowledgeable. Start learning. Start researching. Start learning about the abortion procedures. It's not pretty. It's gross. It's ugly. But we need to be informed. Abortion is not attractive, but we need to know about it. Because what if somebody comes up to you? What if it's your granddaughter? What if it's your daughter or your niece that comes up to you and says, I'm with my boyfriend. I had this accident, and I'm, but I'm just thinking, I don't know what to do. I want to tell mom and dad. And I'm just thinking about taking this plan B. What do you think? Well, I don't really know what that is, and I don't know anything about it. They came to you for answers. They came to you because they wanted your advice. They came to you because they trust you. What if it's somebody in the church? Hey, you don't know anything. You're supposed to be the pro-life expert. You don't know what to tell them. We're fighting a battle. And I mean, we know that in the end, right? I mean, we know when all this is over, we know that we've won. I mean, we know that we've won. But while we're here on earth, we better fight hard. We better do the very, very best that we can. Because we are going to be held accountable for it. And we better start fighting very, very hardest that we can. The Bible says we are the hands and feet of Christ. And I don't think there's any better way than to use them than in this movement. And that's what I want to encourage all of you to do tonight. I want you to feel motivated to go out and do something with your pro-life beliefs. And not just come here and say, that was great, and chicken was good, and that fish thing was good. and That's not enough. And to stick, you know, 50 bucks in an envelope, that's not enough. There's something in this movement for every single one of you. And it's time to find what that is. Everybody can do something. There's kind of this tendency, like, oh, that's a women's thing. No. It takes two people to get somebody pregnant, just in case you didn't know. Only one woman I know that got pregnant (laughs) without having a physical man present. I don't think it's happening again anytime soon. And we need good, holy men available 
to mentor these young guys that come in, right? I'm like talking. I'm like, I hope so. And maybe you don't want to counsel another guy, but you could come in and change light bulbs or air conditioning filters, or you could fold baby clothes, right? Folding baby clothes is really easy. It's just like one little fold. Just It's not complicated like folding T-shirts or anything. It's really easy. You can sort things or stuff envelopes or answer the phone and then just quickly put it on hold. It's so easy. There's something in the pro-life movement for everybody. You know, my four-year-old daughter, Grace, goes out to the clinic to pray with me where I used to work. She goes out and she stands and we pray together. And I always tell people, if she can go out there, a four-year-old who has the attention span of like an ant, if she can go out there and stand with me for an hour and pray, and she prays, she's like a little prayer warrior. If she can go out there and stand with me and pray by name for those women that she knows, she grew up with them. And she prays by name for those people that she knows and that she grew up with. And she prays for the babies in their mommy's tummies as they go in. If she can do that for an hour with me, you guys have no excuse for not getting involved. We can all make sacrifices of our time. We can all make sacrifices of our money. We can all make those sacrifices. And there is nothing in this world that is better to sacrifice for than kids. Nothing. That was former Planned Parenthood abortuary manager Abby Johnson with part of her conversion story. We thank her and those who brought her to the area to tell her story. Earlier on this edition of Putting on the Mind of Christ, we listened to Session 2 of Ave Maria Radio's first conference, Catholic Witness in a Nation Divided. The topic of this session was one of the hot-button issues, immigration. Our speaker was Kevin Appleby. He is the Director of Policy and Public Affairs for the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops. Joining him for the panel discussion following his talk were the Acton Institute's Father Robert Circo and our own Al Cresta. This program concludes our coverage of the Catholic Witness in a Nation Divided Conference. However, stay tuned. The next Catholic Witness Conference is in the planning stages. Our talks for putting on the mind of Christ are drawn from an extensive archive we recorded over the last dozen or so years. The talks were recorded at large and small conferences, parish missions, and diocesan and parish teaching sessions. They have been edited for enhanced listening clarity and comprehension. License has been granted by the speakers for this use. A CD of this program is available. Order program number 461. To place your order or for more information, phone 734-930-4506. 734-930-4506. Or email orders at AveMariaRadio.net. Putting on the Mind of Christ is presented by the Ave Maria Communications Guild and this station. This radio station is listener supported. If you like what is offered here, we ask that you support it with your treasure. This is your host and program producer, Henry Root. Thanks for being with us on this edition of Putting on the Mind of Christ. Tune in next time for a talk about Christian concerns from the Catholic perspective. Until next time, may our Lord richly bless you and your family. This is Ave Maria Radio.